Before you listen into this podcast, we'd like to warn you that we cover some sensitive topics and that there will be some strong language in some of the audio used. From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Barry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we unpack top news stories out of our radio newsrooms across the country. On Deadline this week is violence in the U.S., from mass shootings to serial murders. Over the weekend, nine mass shootings were reported across the nation, resulting in five deaths and leaving 56 people injured. It's part of an ongoing trend. CDC statistics revealed that more Americans died from gun-related deaths in 2021 than any year on record, and this year is on track to be even deadlier. As of Monday, data from the Gun Violence Archive indicated there had been 421 mass shootings in the country so far this year, more than at the same point in 2021. That's an average of about two mass shootings per day. And that means there's a reason twice every single day for political leaders to send messages about thoughts and prayers. It begs questions. Questions like, why does America produce so many killers? How do we ignore so many obvious cries for help, like the ones from Oxford, Michigan school shooter Ethan Crumbly? And sometimes, like we saw in the Gilgo Beach murders, how do we manage to hide killers in plain sight? While it can take just seconds for a life to be lost due to gun violence, getting justice for the crimes can be a lengthy process. Getting an understanding of why some of these shooters kill can take even longer, if ever. In November 2021, then-15-year-old Ethan Crumbly opened fire on students and teachers at Oxford High School in leafy suburban Oakland County, Michigan. He killed four people and injured seven others. On the morning of the shooting, his parents were summoned to the school to discuss his violent drawings. A picture of guns and blood with the words, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. Then he was released back into his classroom. Later, he came out of the bathroom with the gun his parents bought him as a Christmas present and started firing. Crumbly was in a courtroom last week where audio he recorded the night before the rampage was played. WWJ News Radio in Detroit obtained a copy of the recording, and here's a portion of it. Please note that this content may be disturbing. There is no heaven. There is no God. There is no Satan. There is no hell. But the world is hell in its own way. If you don't think of it, you think as hell is the bottom, earth is the middle, and heaven is the top. But in reality, the earth is just hell. It's always been that, and people want to just forget it. They want to just take away what already is. It's it's stupid. I'm taking action. People going to protest, fucking take away guns or make what I'm doing. I believe I am one of the first people to do this. I'm not really shooting up the school because I'm mentally depressed. Or mentally ill. I have anxiety that struggles me every day. But I'm doing it. Teach a word. Crumbly, who has pleaded guilty to all charges, was in court for a hearing required to determine if the teen should be sentenced to life without parole. The hearing continues this week. James and Jennifer Crumbly, the shooter's parents, are also jailed on involuntary manslaughter charges. They're the first parents in America charged in a school shooting. Back in 2018, another mass shooter murdered 11 worshippers and injured six others in an anti-Semitic attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
This June, the shooter, Robert Bowers, age 51, was found guilty on all 63 counts levied against him. Dr. Tim Murphy, a psychologist and former congressman, joined Larry and Marty on KDKA's Big K Morning Show out of Pittsburgh Tuesday to discuss mental health, social media, and violence in the wake of Bauer's sentencing. You sent me a text regarding the synagogue shooter, Robert Bowers, and you said, and I quote, makes you wonder what might have been had this man been treated sooner, right? Right. You know, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy what's happened now. And as far as justice goes, that's up to the jury. The family members uh, need some closure. Um, and at this point, we have to understand that whatever level of mental illness he has, a person in many cases is capable of planning horrendous crimes. There's other types where someone is spontaneous. But we look back on these cases, look at the Parkland uh, High School shooter, look at the shooter in the Sandwick Elementary School, look at a number of these things, and you'll find in their life, People said, move them on. That's uh, not doing anything. He's right. You, you, you'll find broken right. uh, aspects of families. And you, this is not something we can just hand off and pretend it's going to go away uh, or, or walk by a homeless person. Hand them Thorazine, hand them Thorazine and send them out on the streets. That was the, that was the old days. There's yep. other medications now that can be helpful, but even those, a clozapine is one, even those are ones where. You have to jump through major hoops uh, and having monthly tests to get these things done. The FDA needs to change it to make it easier. It needs to have more outreach for people. We make it the most difficult for the people who have the most difficulty. And while the government is spending lots of money in other areas, it would really be a, a savings of money and of lives and of stresses to be helping people early on. I'm, I would imagine, Tim, it's been frustrating at times at the federal level to get people to listen because in many cases, you were the lone voice on this issue. That's right. I, I know at the time, Tom Mensel, who was the, uh, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, said that my legislation was the most significant in at least 50 years in the federal government, maybe in the history of it, trying to make some reforms. But we ran into a lot of walls with that. Some people didn't like the spending. Some people thought, well, those who are severely mentally ill have rights to refuse treatment. And those became major sticking points, and they're still there. The issue of right to refuse treatment is very important. We don't want to coerce or force people into treatment they do not need. That's the old days of the old hospital or the old uh, massive institutions where people were taken away. But something very important is those with a very serious mental illness like schizophrenia. About 40-50% of them have a condition called anosognosia, which basically means they are not aware that they're ill, and they're not aware that they're not aware. Mm. Similar to someone with Alzheimer's or other brain damage where they're not aware, if it's two in the morning and the elderly woman's walking down the streets of Pittsburgh in the snow and she says, I've got to get to school. We understand that's probably Alzheimer's. That person needs help. Contact the family, do whatever's necessary. But if a person is delusional and psychotic, they're often maybe taken to the hospital and the hospital may say, we don't have enough beds. So we're going to keep you here in the emergency room or laying on a bed in the hall. Till we can find a bed, or maybe once you come to more, you can you can leave, uh, then we'll send you home. The three largest mental health facilities in America mm. are the jail in L.A., the jail in Chicago, and the jail in New York. The largest mental health hospital in Western PA is the damn jail. And nothing right. has changed. We are still, we still have mentally ill patients sitting in the jail with no treatment. How the hell do we accept this in America? I, I can't. Wrap my arms around this, sir. What What is it about us that we refuse to acknowledge this and address it? Well, there's a book out written by um, Ron Powers a few years ago called Nobody Cares About Crazy People. 
as awful as that sounds, some of that is the truth. And yet, 20% of people, and almost every family has someone wow. who is touched by mental illness. We have to eliminate bigotry and prejudice against it. We all struggle at some points in our lives. We have, uh, 70% of people face trauma, and they struggle with that. Uh, we have to open our hearts and, and open our walls to deal with it. As mass shootings continue to plague the U.S., another type of violent crime has also made headlines this summer. Serial murder. Like mass shootings, serial murders have historically been more common in the U.S. than in other countries. According to the University of Michigan, reports of this type of crime spiked from the 1970s through the 1990s and have declined in recent years. Then there's the Gilgo Beach murders. Last month, Odyssey station 1010 Winds in New York reported on the arrest of 59-year-old architect Rex Hewerman, who's now being held at the maximum security Suffolk County Correctional Facility in Riverhead, New York. He's accused of murdering three women and is the prime suspect in a fourth murder. Hewerman is linked to the Gilgo Beach murder investigation, which was sparked by the discovery of several sets of human remains on the south shore of Long Island. If he did commit the crimes, he did so during a 27-year-long marriage that ended when his wife filed for divorce after his arrest. Dr. Scott Bonn, a criminologist and author who's spoken on the Gilgo Beach murders extensively, joined Newsline with Brigitte Quinn from WCBS Radio in New York to get a better understanding. I was gratified to see that my profile very closely matches um, Hewerman. And but I wasn't at all surprised, especially when I heard that he was an architect, because architects have to be by, you know, by definition, highly meticulous, very, very focused and um, motivated individuals. And that is exactly the type of individual who would commit these crimes. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Bond, what else do you feel criminologists such as yourself got right? Well, in addition to the um, uh, his his personality uh, profile and, and his uh, vocation, the fact that he was a or is a family man, and the fact that he's highly educated and functions extremely highly in society. I mean, he's a successful architect, and that seems to be contradictory to a, a cold blooded killer. But in fact, it's not. Many serial killers operate that way, just like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, come to mind immediately. And Dr. Bond, uh, some more recent developments since the story broke that now warehouses are being searched in Amityville, a property in South Carolina. Uh, Now uh, the investigation is also underway in Vegas, where the suspect uh, reportedly had some timeshare. What do you make of that? This isn't at all uncommon, when, especially in a high-profile case like this. When an individual is apprehended, they look at cold cases, not just locally, but uh, but all over the country to see if there's a, a potential link. So that's not surprising. But I will say this. Given the fact that his burial ground was uncovered back in 2011, and I believe that it was truly sacred ground to him, to the extent that he was still operating at that time, he may have gone to, uh, pardon the pun, but greener pastures. It's conceivable that there are other burial grounds out there and bodies that have yet to be located. So, and, and Doctor, what precisely do you mean by uh, sacred ground? The serial killers take the, this this vocation of theirs, the, the 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 torture and killing of others, very seriously. 
And uh, so for him, this is, it was a special place that I'm sure he revisited many times. He lived very close by, right across the bay. It's not inconceivable he was in the crowd as they discovered the bodies uh, there uh, back in 2011. I'm sure he's followed this case in the news all through the last 12 years. It's unlikely that he just abruptly stopped. So there is a real likelihood that there are other bodies out there. And as I said, another burial ground that he was using. With every life lost, it becomes more clear that there's a lot of work to be done to prevent violent crime in the U.S. There are groups working to reduce the frequency of these tragic events and to help people who've been impacted by them already. These include the Council on Criminal Justice, the National Crime Prevention Council, and the National Domestic Violence Hotline. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Barry, and I want to say thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey's deeper look at a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed. 